CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show, The Traditionalist. We are recording on Black Friday, which is November 26th, year 2021. I'm Jack Fowler, the host. The star namesake is Victor Davis Hanson, who is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. It's a kind of a grim day today with news of a new coronavirus strain and the markets are open, the stock market and the reaction has been horrific. So we'll talk about that and several other issues right after this important message. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show, the traditionalist. There's also the classicist, which I'm fortunate enough to host, and then the culturalist, which the great Sammy Wink hosts with Victor. So do check out all of our podcasts under the Victor Davis Hanson Show umbrella. As you've heard, as most America has heard, there is yet a new strain of this coronavirus. It's being called the B strain. I think that B is for Botswana. It's originating from Southern Africa. But from what little I've seen, it seems that this virus is pretty virulent and um, pretty speedy in its destructive capabilities. Victor, I don't know what we can say or you can say about anything biological related here at this point. What are your thoughts about this, Victor? Before I do, Jack, you mentioned the word Black Friday today. And let's because we have a whole host of listeners that were educated in the modern university system or K through 12. They might suggest that that's a racialized term and that we're endorsing it. And Black Friday, as Jack knows, has nothing to do with race. It has a various uh, contest, variously contested etymology. Some people suggested it was when retailers in the 50s went all year long in the red. And then right after the Thanksgiving holiday, the Christmas season started and people rushed out and they, on their ledger, they put pluses in black ink and minuses in red. And from then on, it was black. So that was black. I don't think that etymology is as convincing as just the general sense 
that it's chaos. People have eaten and they want to go out and start Christmas shopping. It's congestion. And I think it probably has something to do with, you know, Black Friday. I think it was Jay Gould and Jay Fisk when they collapsed the stock market on Friday. But there's a lot of etymologies and it has nothing to do with race. And I only say that because every time that I've encountered uh, younger people and they feel that there's a word like black mark or black Tuesday or anything, they feel that there's somehow racial denigration. I'm being tongue in cheek, but not 99%. Well, you're right to be. I mean, there are people that think calling a black hole a black hole is, a, is, is racist. I know. I, I don't know. So, and of course, black has nothing to do with skin color when we talk about the force of darkness or something. It's the idea at night things are dangerous, more dangerous or more scary or more sinister. And it, when the sun comes up, we can see better. And so that whole vocabulary of dark, black came from that idea. It had nothing to do with race. In fact, as far as Western civilization goes, remember Homer called the Ethiopians godlike people. And there was no idea that anybody who was darker than an olive-complected uh, Mediterranean person was at all culpable of anything. So, of course, my ancestors were the objects of racial discrimination in the, in the ancient world. We were white-skinned, light-haired uh, savages in the northern parts of Europe. In fact, when Roman women wanted to slum, they would put their white lead makeup on and their blonde wigs to act like they were going into the gutter, so to speak, and emulate, you know, Thracians or Germans or Gauls or Northern European gladiators or something. So with that little tidbit, let's continue. We don't talk about China, Jack, for three reasons. Let's admit it. The media, the bureaucracy, Wall Street, and I'll just put a little note here, Jamie Dimon, the big financier that we all worship supposedly, said the other day that Wall Street would last longer than the Chinese Communist Party, and then stopped and basically apologized. So my point is, why do we apologize? Why does LeBron is so sensitive about a fan that gives him a dirty look or something or says something, gets him ejected, but he doesn't care at all about a million and a half Uyghurs, they're being really subjected to surveil-like conditions. And why, when we know that this virus was created in China, and I say created, if you still believe it jumped from a animal to a person, had nothing to do with Wuhan, you could say it was created then by a Chinese animal. But I don't believe that. I believe it originated, as most people do, either by operating, I should say, dissecting, tampering with, engineering viruses from animals or trying to even make them uh, more lethal and then it escaped. And I won't even get into the culpability of the escape other than that if something escapes from your house, it's lethal, you're responsible. So one reason obviously is China has money. It's 1.4 billion people, and it's not passive about it. It monitors everything every day in Europe and the United States. And anybody who suggests just a, a modicum of criticism, they go after. So people are afraid of that because so many people are leveraged. Leverage, leverage, leverage. It's not just LeBron James. It's Bill Gates. It's Mike Bloomberg. It's Jamie Dimon. It's Hollywood. It's so many people got wealthy in a 
in a, at a magnitude that was just unimaginable 25 years ago, these bicoastal elites. So that's one, it's money. And two, we've talked about this before, Jack, if you go onto a Hollywood movie, and I try to avoid them, but if I watch them on television, all of the bad guys, the heavies, the villains, either have a Russian or South African accent, and they're all white, and they've got Orthodox Christianity or Christian tattoos or something like that. But there's never evil Chinese people. So there's a sense that China is part of the other. That is the non-white, noble, marginalized people. I know you're going to laugh and say it's impossible, but the people still have that Maoist idea that the Chinese were subject to exploitation and colonialism and let's overlook what they're doing now. So they fit in and they manipulate brilliantly the whole woke movement. So those are two good reasons. It's money and it's the idea that you know, you don't want to get on the wrong side of the woke. And then let's be very candid. If China right now, when we talk about China, we're talking about not the Taiwanese or Chinese people in Singapore. We're talking about the, a country run by the Chinese Communist Party. And so you don't really wipe that out of your memory banks. Uh, when I was a, came up from my, as a yokel from my farm to UC Santa Cruz in 1971, all of the dorms that I lived in or I walked through had posters of either Mao or Che or Fidel. Mao was the guy. And so a lot of these people, and remember, I think it was, uh, what was her name, Jack, that public relations, uh, FLAC, uh, press secretary, Flack. Dunn was, Anita, was her name Dunn that worked for Obama that said that she gave a talk to a high school and said that Mao was one of her heroes. The yeah. greatest, yeah, the greatest mass murder in the history of civilization is Mao. So what I'm getting at for the left that controls the media and a lot of these institutions that we talk about all the time, the fact that they're communist and they're on the left gives them an exemption. If we were talking right now about some right wing dictatorship and they were responsible for that, we would go nuts right now. But this is why they're so insidious. They're commies. They're rich and they play it as marginalized. And that's very hard for our institutions when they control basically that empathy in our institutions. It's very hard for us to get mobilized and get angry. And then there's another fourth one, and that is they have military parity almost with us now. And they're working on another 100 intercontinental sophisticated ballistic nuclear weapons. They bully people militarily. They have a larger Navy than we do by ship. Our military is in disarray, both ideologically, politically, and financially. And so they are telling people in the area, whether it's the Australians, or the Japanese, or the Taiwanese, or the South Koreans, or the Japanese, they're telling them we are the rising sun, and they are the setting sun. So you add all that up. And the, yeah, they control everything. And then and the global narrative is don't ever mention that they created, at worst, they were looking at bat viruses in a lab and one got out. That's the best, excuse me. And the worst is that they were engineering something and it got out. It has a propensity, as one virologist told me, usually when there are mutations, half the time they become weaker 
and less virulent and less transmissible. But this virus, every time it mutates, it seems to become more transmissible and more lethal. There is one, I want to put one footnote to all this, and that is when you pick up the newspaper or you go online and you read about these things and you see these scare headlines, no one ever says the following. This is the number of people who have tested positive for the new Delta variety, the new B variety, new African version. This is the number of people who have died from it, from itself. That is, they weren't suffering from congestive heart failure, diabetes, and obesity. And this is the number of people who have tested positive, who have it, but have not been tested. So if you get 10 people who feel ill and they go get tested and one has it, you can say, well, it, it, it's 10% lethal, you know, and then you take that 10% who have it and then you say, how many of that 10% died rather than, well, uh, maybe the 10% that got tested, there was a lot more that got it and they didn't get tested and they didn't die. But we have no idea about the lethality or the transmissibility of any of these viruses, but the old formula that if you're under 60 to 65 and you don't have comorbidities, you have a chance of dying about 98.7 to 99, of surviving at 98.7 to 99%. And if you're a child, it goes up to 99.9. And yet we don't hear that. Here in California, where the scare quotes go 5,000 cases a day. It's back. What are we going to do? And then you look at the lethality in a state of 40 million, it's like 75 people. And you think, well, my little community where I live, and this has been what, for the second day of holiday, they've already had two people killed. And if you look at the greater Fresno area, from what I find in the news, they've had three more people killed. So we're doing our little bit to, to contribute five violent deaths. That's not flu. That's not, that's just violent deaths. The world is a dangerous place, but if you have 40 million people at the height of the next pandemic and you have 75 people dying then a day, then it's not an existential threat, especially when we don't know the circumstances, how those 75 died yesterday from COVID. To the degree they died of COVID alone, I think it was very rare. Well, Victor, let's stay on China for a minute. You mentioned Jamie Dimon. So Jamie Dimon is... Um, head of J.P. Morgan, let's just say he's one of the titans of Wall Street, does a tremendous amount of, the corporation does a tremendous amount of business with uh, China. So uh, recently he was speaking at Boston College and he said, uh, I was just in Hong Kong and I made a joke that the Communist Party is celebrating its 100th year, so is J.P. Morgan. I'd make a bet we last longer. I can't say that in China. They probably are listening anyway. So his comment was picked up by a couple of the um, Bloomberg and a couple of other news outlets. He was immediately attacked by the communists, the Global Times, uh, according now here, I'm, I'm looking at the Daily Mail mouthpiece for the communist state. They attacked. Let me just see here, Victor. They wrote uh, the. The paper warned U.S. companies to educate themselves and avoid making ignorant remarks as they become reliant on Chinese markets for success. They said that uh, Diamond's remarks were racist and insulting, showed an inner racist. arrogance, oh, etc. Yeah. So this is what Jamie Diamond does in response. Two apologies, immediate apologies. I regret 
and should not have made that comment. I was trying to emphasize the strength and longevity of our company. Then the second apology, which came hours later, I truly regret my recent comment because it's never right to joke about or denigrate any group of people, whether it's a country, it's leadership or any part of a society and culture, end quote, which I guess leaves out the Uyghur culture. Victor, here's a titan of corporate America. Let's make him a stand-in for corporate America. It's genuflecting to communist China, and yet they would hesitate at nothing to belittle the American people, to punish them. We're not going to do business in this state. We're withdrawing our all-star game from that state, et cetera, et cetera. The disdain they have for regular Americans, the way they conduct their businesses and boardrooms now is just wokeness run amok. The affinity for communist China is kind of appalling. Kind of. When he said we shouldn't denigrate any nation, let's just say, oh, well, we shouldn't make fun of Nazi Germany. we got to go back. That was unfair. We stereotyped Nazis. They weren't all, all Nazis. Oh, Imperial Japan wasn't a bad place. Or let's go today. And we can say what? We can look at Venezuela and say, why are you making fun of the government of Venezuela? It's very unkind. He doesn't do that, Jack, because Venezuela has no power and no money. This has nothing to do with his pseudo morality or ethics or confessionals. It has to do with money. It's no accident that Bloomberg really wanted to go to town with it because Bloomberg is whom? Is who? It's Michael Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg, remember, assured us that China was a consensual society and that even he and all of the dictators in the Communist Party have a constituency that they listen to and they have to be accountable to. And then when he ran for president, remember that it was disclosed that he had had about $10 billion in China invested at a very lucrative return to jumpstart Chinese Communist Party affiliated companies that wanted to get a, a toehold in the international markets. And so they're everywhere. And he is, he's a moral coward, especially when he's created this little cachet that he is the go-to quote guy. What, what did Jamie Dimon say? Jamie Dimon said that. You know, Jamie Dimon is a straight shooter. James tells it like it is. Remember all that we heard? He was really, you know, he, they all loved him when he would say stuff about Trump, you know, and all this. He, he doesn't care. He's t- no, he does care. He's like all of them. They're only in for money. And you wonder why, you know, Jamie Dimon is a billionaire. So is he worried that he's going to what? Not be able to get a citation 10, uh, a new one every year? Is he worried that J.P. Morgan might make, I don't know, $100 billion rather than $105 billion? Is that what he's worried about? And was there a J.P. Morgan? He says it lasts 100 years. Was there a J.P. Morgan before communist China became an international player? I think there was. 20 years ago, would he have said that? Yes, he wouldn't have worried at all. So it's about money, money, money. And there is no morality. There's no all of these little things that was mean of me to stereotype. He, he would stereotype anybody if it was lucrative for him. And he has no ethical bearing. None of those people do. That's why they do what they do. I have no problem with it as long as they're honest about it. He should just say, look, I run JP Morgan. I'm responsible first and foremost and solely to my shareholders. If I make fun of a major financial partner and that partner is an autocratic dictatorship prone to be very hypersensitive 
very adept at propaganda and a dangerous adversary you don't want, then I've endangered the profits of my shareholders and my own salary, and I'm not going to do that. I would admire him if he'd said that. Well, Victor, I'd like to remind our listeners that uh, you have a website, victorhanson.com. It's the Blade of Perseus. It has a significant amount of original material published almost daily. There is a great series up right now. Now my screen won't work. But it's, a, it's a three-part series on, the, the. I think it's the face of fascism. It's uh, exclusive content uh, amongst so much other exclusive content. So I would like to recommend to our listeners to visit and consider subscribing $5 a month, $50 for the year. You'll also find links to Victor's book, The Dying Citizen, which is still doing very, very well. And regardless of whether it's doing well or not, it's must reading uh, for people who are concerned about citizenship, which is what we're going to be talking about in a minute. As for myself, I just have to put a little note. I'm the head director of the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic, and we have a website by that name, Center for Civil Society, and I also write the Civil Thoughts weekly email newsletter, civilthoughts.com. Check it out. So, Victor, well, let me back up onto one thing just to wrap up what we were just talking about. I did say Black Friday because, yes, today is known as Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. It may also be known as Black Friday in the years off, like Black Tuesday was from 1986 when the stock market crashed. And because of this new COVID strain, as we speak right now, the stock market today is down over a thousand points. Who knows how and when, if it will recover, but it is a grim day for, for people and retirees that have their 401ks, et cetera. Now, Victor, on to citizenship. Can I just interrupt uh, just a second? Sure, yeah, yeah, my friend. Just of very course. quickly, finishing the China thing, we should all read the Chinese Daily News because that's the largest English newspaper and that is put out by the Chinese Communist Party. It's got millions of readers worldwide. And I have read it a lot. I try to read it each week. They never, Jack, never, 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 never apologize. They attack, 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 attack the United States daily. They libel and smear individual Americans hourly. No one ever says to them, don't do that or else. No one does. So they never apologize. If you go on there today, you'll see basically a promise that they're going to take over Taiwan. Or the next thing is that they're building a bigger military than ours. They don't apologize. And when they look at us, and we get a guy like Jamie Dimon, or Biden will not say anything about the Wagers, or John Kerry, who always has something to pontificate about, says, that's not my lane to talk about China other than climate change. Then they look at that and they say, you know, this Westernism is a very strange thing. We stole their technology. We like their research universities. We couldn't produce it under our system because we don't allow any free thought. So we're just going to harvest all of their technology all the time. And then we're going to have an autocratic method of production that's superior to theirs. No unions, put a gun to your head, get to work, have servile camps if necessary. And it's a superior system because look at those people. They're so neurotic. They're so decadent. We're no longer, no sooner do they criticize, they apologize. No sooner than... 
They get in a little fight with Trump. They run over and call us and say, please, please, I want you to know if Donald Trump tells anything about me that I think is hostile to you people who've killed 70 million people in the 20th century, the Chinese Communist Party, then I'm going to call you first and tell you that I have to work for crazy Donald Trump if you're General Milley. And so that's what they think of us. And Jamie Dimon doesn't know that secretly they're saying, what an idiot that guy was. I thought I had a little bit more respect for him. Let's take him in the next deal. Let's just snub him. Let's humiliate him. So they don't understand the autocratic mind. You know, they should read Churchill's Second World Wars with the first book on the 1930s and how they got into the mess they did with Hitler. The second thing I, I want to apologize about, you said Black Tuesday and I don't really count the financial problem, but remember Black Tuesday was, I think it was May 29th, the fall of Constantinople, 1453, May 29th. And the reason I say that is I lived in Greece off and on probably for three years, but a couple of times for a year straight. And I was in a, a, an apartment. I lived in Papadiamontopoulou Street in an area called Mikros Asias. It was from people who had fled Mikros Asias was the Asia Minor district, and they had fled the mainland, uh, i.e. Asia Minor. And I shouldn't say the mainland, Asia. And they were wiped out, most of them, on the docks at Smyrna, which is now Izmir. And anyway, in that neighborhood, I woke up one day. I tried to keep abreast of customs, and it was Black Tuesday, May 29th. And the bishop came to the neighborhood and his subordinates came to each little apartment. And I got a knock on the door. Would you please give me 30 drachmas? That was in 1973. And then again, 78, nine. And I started talking to this guy and I said, well, the paleologus answer, the one of the main family that was emperor, but they never found the body. And when the city fell, remember the archangel was supposed to come down and save everybody in Hagia Sophia. There were 7,000 7, people in the nave and they were all had the doors and then the doors broke open. A lot of people thought the archangel had, had come, but actually it was Turkish janissaries that butchered everybody. And anyway, he said, don't worry, Americanos, don't worry that the emperor has been marbleized. He was taken up by the archangel, and he was in a permanent state of suspended animation, and he's in marble. And he almost came back in 1920 when we had the Megala Idea after World War I, that we were going to remake the Aegean as a Greek lake as it had been in antiquity with major Greek cities at Alexandria, Constantinople, Smyrna, Adrianopolis, and inside would be Greek culture, Hellenism. And so I just say that whenever I hear Black Tuesday, I always think that at some point on a Tuesday, the emperor, the last emperor of the Byzantine Empire will regain his flesh, come down from the skies and reestablish Hellenism where it was born. That's huh. kind of tongue in cheek, but there is another yeah. added to, there is another aspect of Black Tuesday. Non-financial, just, just, <laughs> just societal. Well, Victor, New York City, the New York City Council, in the Hazard is about to vote to his overwhelming support for this to allow non-citizens to vote in municipal elections. That's about 800,000 people. And then also in Vermont, 
two cities, Montpelier and Winooski, they are allowing non-citizens to vote. And actually, the Republican National Committee is suing to prevent that. Victor, as the author of a book, The Dying Citizen, the new book, are you surprised by this? I doubt it. In the book, The Dying Citizen, here's a plug. I talk about that in the context of, I more or less say, here is what citizenship was, i.e. the exclusivity for citizen, and here's what it is now. And all I could say, Jack, is I can only find one privilege of citizenship left that residents don't share. In other words, citizens used to be in the military alone. Citizens could go back and forth across our borders and leave the country without permission alone. They had passports, which you needed. Yeah, I'm talking about the modern era, not you know, 1810 or something. And citizens could vote and citizens could alone have federal entitlements and citizens alone could work in campaigns and citizens alone could hold office. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, the only thing left is that citizens can hold office. Uh, we've talked about that before. Leave your passport in London by accident and then fly into Kennedy and see how far you go past custom. You're not going to make it. You know, go down to Tijuana and decide you're just going to, you know, drive across somewhere or go out in the ocean and swim around that barrier. You'll probably make it and you won't be deported. Or if you're an illegal citizen, go across the Mexican border or something. Nobody's going to stop you. Nobody's going to stop you either way. So that's one thing. The second thing is, in the 90s, they passed laws because people were bringing this up then as illegal immigration rose. Remember, this, is, this comes up because of the, the sheer numbers of people who are here illegally. And we've got about 50 million people, legal and not, who were not born in the United States. Some of them are legal residents. Some of them have became citizens. It's an enormous amount of people, though. And we have about 22 million that are here illegally that are residents. Many of them are now 18. We have 2 million scheduled to come across. So this is just simply a reaction to numbers in the Democratic Party and the left wanting new constituencies to feel they're beholden for entitlements given because their agendas otherwise, as we know from Biden's own polls and his agenda's polls, don't resonate. Okay, that's the background of it. But when you actually look at it, in the 90s, when people were worried about that, they passed federal laws. And it's nobody on the left yet is saying you can vote in a federal election, that is, on the national level for the vice president or in the Senate. Now, that's getting challenged because people say, well, the senator represents me or the House member represents me. And that's the next attack. So what they're talking about right now is, well, those were federal laws. What if with this uh, Vermont election or the Massachusetts election or California election has no federal officials on it? It's just local. Well, it started out with school boards and then it went to local state senators or state assembly people and state white offices, as you see now. And it is true that most states, I think there's only two of them, Jack, that have a law that says, if you are not a citizen, you cannot vote in a state or local or regional election because they never thought anybody would do it. Just two did. I think North or South Dakota is one of them. But my point is this. When you actually look, as I did when I was writing the book, I looked at a lot of these state voting laws, and they all say the same thing almost exclusively. The citizen can vote 
if, and then they have different qualifications, if the citizen is 18, if the citizen is not a felon or has not been a felon, if the citizen has a resident within the state or the municipality that's, that's relevant. And so what I'm getting at, it's all predicated in black and white language that the citizen can vote if they haven't done the following. And then they have, some of them have, the citizen can vote if they're 18 without a criminal record. So my point is that when they go to court, the Republicans, the conservatives are going to say, look, the intent of the law by the use of the word citizen is that citizens only should vote. Because if they didn't believe that, they just said that they would have just said the resident, but they didn't want to do that. And the reason that they did not say only the citizen is because they just thought nobody would be crazy enough to think that somebody else were going to do it. When, and then when I was writing the book, I always tried to read the countervailing arguments. What, so what was so great about this insane idea? And you would read it and they'd say, well, before 1820 in 1837 in Boston, I you know what I mean? That was all ancient history when everything was lax. We didn't have computers, people those great immigration waves in the 1840s or whatever. So they go back to that, or they have that left-wing propensity to say, well, they didn't actually say that. They only implied it, therefore, but they didn't, if you're talking about implying, they didn't imply residents are going to vote either. And so I don't think it's going to stand up in court, but we'll see. And it's going to do a lot of damage because their argument is also, well, People who are residing here pay the same amount of taxes as U.S. citizens. I'm not sure that's true because so many people who the first act they do when they cross the border to come here illegally is to violate the law. The second act they do is to reside illegally. And the third act they do is usually to have some type of illegal immigration. So if I had a helicopter or a drone right now, I could take this morning and show you that in almost every rural major intersection around my house, there are people out there selling, whether it's food or milkshakes or fruit or clothes. <laughs> you can go buy a, a lawnmower. You can go buy a bike. I mean, they're, they're not just secondhand sales. And none of them are paying sales tax, not any of them. And I can tell you that uh, I'll put some pictures on my website. I took them the other day. Is trash all over here on the on the road. So nobody is following the law, and that is a natural result of a pattern of behavior that is inculcated the moment you get in the United States. So I doubt very seriously if you were to take a poll and you look other than sales tax that people who are here illegally pay anywhere near the amount of money that legal residents and citizens do. That's my supposition. So I don't know what the argument for it is other than we get a lot of power because we promise people amnesty and open borders and welfare and education and legal and housing and food supplements. And therefore they'll reward us with fealty at the polls. And if they don't, and they start to become assimilated and legal as is happening now, when they start to be apostates from the Democratic Party, then we'll just let in some more people to replace them. Well, also, Victor, if you can vote, if you can be an illegal, if I may use that term, and vote, you can be an illegal and run for office, too. What if you won? And you're going to swear an oath to the Constitution that you 
that you have absolutely no ties to. It's kind of yeah. There's standard. and then there's the argument. You know, there's the argument: what is legal and what is legally enforced. So I know there was a case in my area where a student body president of the local university was here illegally, and he ran for a student body, and the person who lost complained and said. He's entering the political system, and you can't do that if you're illegal. And then it was found out, and this is this is very funny, that a national candidate, I think it was a senator, that as an intern, he had volunteered to help. And the losing candidate did some investigation, said then he committed a serious misdemeanor by being a resident who was employed by a political campaign and thus interfering in U.S. politics as an alien. And it had the opposite effect. Everybody said, I think the school president said, wow, he's a model citizen already. He just broke the law and he helped a candidate. That's the kind of civic participation we want. So we live in Orwellian time. They were in the model citizens were in the crowd in Kenosha also. Victor, we have time for one more topic. We're going to talk about Joe Biden's uh, Thanksgiving and the optics of it. And we'll do that right after this message. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show, the traditionalist being recorded on Friday, November 26th. Victor, yesterday, Joe Biden, as is his uh, has been his tradition, uh, for whatever reason, he goes to Nantucket, one of the islands off of Cape Cod in Massachusetts. That's where he seems to have been spending his Thanksgiving in years past. He was at the home of billionaire David Rubenstein, who's got a $20 million spread on the water. Biden called up Al Roker yesterday. So Al Roker from NBC, Weatherman was hosting or moderating, whatever you want to call it, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Biden called him up and said kind of famously uh, with him one day, America is back. This was America eating a meal that cost about 20 percent more than it did the year before. Rampant inflation and one day away, which is today, away from a an economic free fall in our markets. Victor, do you have any thoughts on the optics of uh, Joe Biden's 2021 yeah. Thanksgiving. I have a lot of thoughts. So this is the person who, to ram through his infrastructure and as a preliminary to ram through his reconciliation bill, all he has said is corporations don't pay their fair share. The rich don't pay their fair share. If that's true, then don't go over to the richest homes. Go tell your host, how much taxes did you pay? I'm not going to give you publicity and I'm not going to honor you by my presence of the, as the president of the United States unless I can see your tax return. So the Democrats do that all the time now. It's, it's kind of ossified boilerplate. The rich have to pay their fair share. And you know what? They're the party of the rich. I mean, here we are in California. We pay 13% income tax. And all 
Gavin Newsom does, and Joe Biden said, well, you got to pay your fair share. And then Newsom's got two mansions. He's often late on his property tax stuff. He's a creation of corporate cronyism of the Bay Area. He's a multimillionaire. He hangs out with the multi-multi-millionaire Nancy Pelosi, who hangs out with a multi-billionaire Dianne Feinstein. And they all lecture us about paying your fair share. It's kind of like Joe saying that, you know, well, you know, border walls have never worked when he just put in, what, a $57,000 wall or fence around his seaside estate. Or Barack Obama tells us, you know, well, you know, global warming is going to raise sea levels while he buys a sea level place at Martha's Vineyard. These people, it's just a, I don't know what you'd call it. It's kind of rote. It's just a, a skit that they play. They are bought and sold by wealthy corporate interests. I have no problem with that. As long as the Democratic people understand that you go through the Fortune 400 and you look at the names, they're all left wing now. It's not 1960 when, you know, there's the oil guy and the cattle guy and the builder guy and the timber magnate and the farming baron. No, no. These are tech, 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 finance, 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 insurance, insurance, media, media, media. And they're all left wing. We can go on why that is, but we've discussed it in prior podcasts. So he is a corporate lackey. He always was. If you look at the credit card laws he has from Delaware, and if you look at his career with the Biden crime syndicate, if I could be so provocative to say that, given Hunter's emails that I read very carefully, such as you can have access to them. And so he was always a creature of corporate crumbs. That's why he has three homes, the same thing with all of them. And they all want to lecture, 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 lecture. And, you know, they all went to Glasgow and lectured us on global warming, of course. And we hear at almost the same time, as I recall, there were stories coming out that NetJet is, for the first time, short of jets and needs $100 million of more private jets to rent out. And all the corporate people are in panic because their 50 and $60 million jets are in short supply. You know, these are the average flight, I think, is 400 gallons of gas just every time you get in those things. So nobody says when they get to Glasgow or no Klaus Schwab, when they all park them, at, let's just do this to show the world we're serious. Let's just not use a private jet for one year. Hollywood. Jamie Dimon, all of us. Let's just, I think Jamie Dimon pledged that in the next 30 years that JP Morgan was going to spend over a trillion dollars on green investments. And he's in this movement, you know, that all corporate investments should talk about equity and green and all that. Well, why not just do that? And they never do. Why doesn't Joe Biden say, you know what? Uh, just to protest that wall that Donald Trump built, I'm not going to build a wall around my house because I want to be consistent. They never do that. And it gets very hard. I mean, the Republicans have less on that topic. They have less exposure because they're the party of it's free country. If you want to make money, go ahead and do it. Because we believe the more money you make, you can call it trickle down. You can call it absorb. I don't care what you call it, but it makes everybody wealthier. Then we kind of pressure people privately and say, you know, give to the church, give to the university, give to the poor and philanthropy with the most giving people in the world. And that's how it is. But I prefer that straight up talk than, oh, we're for the working person. We want this. We're for this, this. But, but they always, every time they get a chance, remember Barack Obama, the first time he had freedom 
After eight years, and he wasn't in the public eye, what did he do when he came out of office? He flew straight to, remember, Tahiti? And he got on that yacht with all of his corporate billionaire friends. He stayed there for like over a week or two. And that's what they always do. They always go home to where they feel most comfortable. And that's with wealthy celebrities and wealthy people. And then they have to, in some kind of psychological squaring the moral circle, they always have to then blast people who are pikers compared to them. That's been true my entire life. You know, I went to UC Santa Cruz from this farm and I went into the dorm at Morrison House. And then I saw all these guys with Shea berets on. One guy had a little red star on. I thought he was so cool. And then <laughs> they had their posters. And then they did this. And they all didn't take bath. And You know, my dad brought me up there for the day to dump me off. Had big regrets. He didn't know anything about UC Santa Cruz other than, hey, it's 180 miles. That's the closest you see. There's no tuition. You guys aren't going to go to private school. But we're going to dump you there, and you'll get a good education. It's a new UC hard to get into. It's a good school. I don't blame him. But we went there and he just looked at me and he said, oh my God, I feel sorry for you because someday these people are going to run this damn country and they're going to run yeah. it in the ground. He was very prescient. But my point is I get the alumni news and I look at all those people who disrupted classes. I mean, disrupted them. Like not now where they kind of say, oh, global warming, oh, diversity, equity, yeah. inclusion. Fetal came positions. In. Right. Exactly. Yeah. They came in and threw chairs in my history class. They rushed the stage where Jasper Rose was lecturing on art history and tore down the canvases he was showing. They marched down to the Santa Cruz courthouse and let out the cows on the way and said, don't incarcerate poor cows that were in pastures. So those people, if you look at them today, Jack, I, I get them. I can't believe it. Mr. X, I said, yeah, that's the guy. I remember that guy. He had a, a dorm room when he said drugs for sale and he had the prices of marijuana, LSD and everything on the door. I, I remember that guy. He was the guy who bragged that he had the first case of, I won't name it, the venereal disease. Oh, I remember that guy. He was bragging that he got arrested three times for shoplifting. And you know what mm. they are? They're Hollywood screenwriters. They're yeah. aides to senators. They're corporate PR. A lot of them are have just retired from Google or MGM. They are so establishment. So that's, that's so weird about the left. They're corporate capitalist which I have no problem with. And then they play these little roles in these pathetic skits. And so Joe Biden will come back out and say, we're building back better. We're being more, oh, I got I can't talk too long. I got to go back out here to this estate. Why doesn't he just be old Joe Biden from Scranton? Go back to Delaware and do whatever he is or Pennsylvania. And spare us the boilerplate. <laughs> yeah, well, that'll involve some Walter Mitty uh, fantasies that he has if he if he ever goes back. We'll uh, visit uh, Corn Pop in his old age. So <laughs> measure out some chain. <laughs> that was my right. favorite part. Measure out some chain. Yeah. Uh, what a clown. Hey, Victor, uh, that's all the time we have, except for a few notes. One is uh, we're very happy that our listeners, many of our listeners rate this podcast on uh, iTunes, still five-star average. That's uh, terrific. And a number of people leave comments. Here's one from the man 440 who uh, wrote the other day, 
title farmer at heart, quote, for VDH's background in family farming. I am forever grateful. I also came from a farm as a sharecropper, and many of Victor's tales make me fulsome in appreciation. What a great man, all caps, great man, and three exclamation points. Thank you, the man 440. I'll remind folks once again that uh, victorhanson.com is uh, running 24 Seven ton of original material that's yours for enjoyment and um, education for a very minimal amount. Try it out. Five dollars. Five dollars for a month. And then if you like it, it's fifty dollars for a year. Please do consider getting The Dying Citizen. And as I've recommended on other podcasts, if there's somebody in your life who likes military history, I really recommend the Second World Wars, Victor's best-selling book from 20, I think it's 2017, Victor, 2017 or 2018. This terrific book. Okay, well, that's it. And uh, we will be back again uh, in a couple of days with another edition of the Victor Davis Hansen Show, The Traditionalist. Thanks for listening. Thank you. 